Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Cheryl Walker-Hauser. It's January 4th, 2023. We're at Bix Patisserie in Portland. Cheryl, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Uh, first question to get things started is why wine? I guess the thing I love about wine uh, is it's so versatile. Um, there is a wine to drink with every type of food out there. There's a wine to drink as an aperitif. There's a wine to drink like when you're in a bad mood, <laughs> when you're in a good mood, when you're celebrating something, um, when it's raining outside or when you're on a sunny beach. It's just like there's always a wine. For, if, if you're on a budget, there's a wine for you. If you want to splurge, there's a wine for you. So I, I think what I like about the wine is it's like there's a wine for every moment and there's a wine for every person. So take us back to your kind of life before wine. Tell us about uh, growing up, upbringing, and sort of uh, what what your path was before school. So yeah, definitely was not wine was not <laughs> in my younger years. Uh, so I grew up on a farm until grade one. My dad had a dairy farm in uh, Wisconsin. Uh, then we moved to the city, and um, after I graduated, I went to study at University of Minneapolis. Twin Cities, and I was studying engineering because I thought I wanted to go, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed sciences. Um, Minnesota was so cold that one day I walked into the, the offices of the foreign exchange students and I was like, please send me somewhere warm. So they sent me to the Philippines and went to the Philippines. It was nice and warm, but yet the engineering program uh, was not really up to par. So I was like, do I stay here and kind of waste my time or should I go do something else? So I decided to buy a one-way ticket to Thailand, and I went to Thailand, and I had a bowl of tom yum soup, and it just blew my mind, because growing up in Wisconsin, especially on a dairy farm, we ate like a lot of processed foods, a lot of anything that go for your freezer, to your oven, tater tots, pizza, all that kind of stuff, TV dinners, like that's pretty much what I grew up on. And so to go and taste galangio and kefir lime and lemon grass, I was just like, what is this? I need to know more. And so I traveled around uh, by myself, Singapore, Malaysia, and when I got back, uh, I changed my major to food sciences. So I still have the science, but with food too. Um, yeah, and then after I graduated from the, the program there, I was like, okay, I need to focus, and I wanted to be French patisserie. I wanted to be, I wanted to be baking, is what I said. And so I went to a school in Canada, um, British Columbia, and the chef there was French, and so, being from Minnesota, growing, you know, studying there, we have Pillsbury, had um, Betty Crocker, all of those big name General Mills. You know. So I'm going there thinking, like, because I was actually a recipe tester for Pillsbury at one point. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'm going to come back and I'm going to like work at one of these big companies. But instead, I'm with this French chef, and I was like, no, I'm going to France and I'm going to learn French patisserie because this is where the artistry comes in too. So now you have the science and the artistry, and all everything we were making was so. Um, like it had all these different dimensions, you know, to French pastry. It's not like cake and frosting. It's not apple pie, like with the filling and the crust. It's like you have so many different flavors and textures. And I just fell in love with it. I'm like, I need to go to France. So off I went. So tell me about that experience. It was a great experience. It was a difficult experience because I didn't really speak any more French than I had in learning in high school. <laughs> um, so every day was like a game of charades. You know, it was like they didn't speak English, I didn't speak French, but you know, it was kind of fun. Uh, it was also a cultural learning experience for me because I also didn't know, uh, you know, some of the traditions they did. And like, first of all, when I got there, um, there's only one other woman that worked in the pastry lab and she worked in the chocolate part and so they're like okay you go to the chocolate lab I was like okay fine this is fun learning chocolate learning chocolate I'm like when do I get to go to the pastry lab <laughs> where all the men were and so every day I would walk to the chocolate lab and you had to go through the pastry lab to get to the chocolate lab and um, the the guys would kind of like give me I don't say dirty looks but just kind of like eh, you know it's like Finally, one day, I just like threw up my hands and like, what? <laughs> what is wrong? And, and I like stormed out, and uh, the intern came out, gave me a cigarette, 
I didn't smoke, but I was just like, I don't, maybe I should leave, maybe I should, I'm here at my own will, maybe I should just leave. She's like, you have to give them bisous. I was like, what? She's like, the little, you know, hello, every morning you come in, hello, kisses on the cheek. Every person, like, okay, why didn't you tell me this? And I would have done it. So the next day I come in, I go up to everybody, and it was like a whole new workplace. <laughs> so yeah, I, I learned a lot about French culture, I learned, um, French language, I learned a lot about French patisserie, and I guess you could say that's uh, when I started dabbling in a little wine too, because like everybody, every time you have the table, you have the wine, so. So with that kind of experience, at that point, what were you sort of seeing for your future? Well, I always knew that I wanted to start my own business. Um, I had like five businesses before I even graduated high school, <laughs> like it's kind of in me, uh, entrepreneur <laughs> spirit, but um, so I knew that and then, yeah, and I knew it was going to involve French patisserie. Um, I had come to Portland for a minute uh, before I left for France and fell in love with it. Uh, it was in the summer, so it wasn't raining. Um, so yeah, I'm pretty much sure that I was going to come back, going to move to Portland when I got back to the States. So with the experience before coming back to Portland, with that experience, um, did it did it change anything about what you saw as, as, as you kind of grew into the French language, French culture? Was there anything, did you ever have kind of a doubt or a change of mind or was it kind of like, this is what I'm going to do and this is just rein, reinforcing my thought? Uh, yeah, that, this is what I'm doing, this is reinforcing my thoughts. Um, and I just remember coming back, uh, once I set up the shop and it was actually, I started at the farmer's market, but like people were really embracing the product. I was like, finally found something that I can do really well. Like, I like it, and people like it. And that was like a, a great feeling, like, I can do this. So tell me about landing in Portland and, start, and getting started at that point. So I got to Portland, I immediately delved into the farmer's markets because this was, this was 21 years ago. Um, it was easier to get into the market, like I just, I knew that was a test market. I also started, studied um, a little bit of business when I was in college too, so kind of business. I, I'm like one of the few people that uses everything about the college <laughs> diploma. So I use like the science, I use the, the food part of it, I use the business part of it. Um, but yeah, so immediately started at the farmer's market, uh, two or three of them, and then I also got a job at a catering uh, place. And I remember, like, right up to, I was like, oh, man, in three months, I get health insurance and benefits for the first time in my life. And it got, like, two and a half months, and September 11th happened, and <laughs> I got laid off. Um, so at that point, if you lived in Portland or anywhere, I mean, just all the jobs went out the window, and I would open the Oregonian. At this point, you looked at the classifieds, and it went from, like, 10 pages to like a half a page. There was nothing to even try to apply for. So I guess I just keep doing my, my pastry business. Um, when the farmer's market ended, I started, I contacted Pasta Works and they put my product in the shelves. Not, you know, a lot, but like enough to keep me going for the winter before the markets started back up again. You mentioned finding, sort of finding clients, right? Or finding interested customers right away. Tell me about that process. Was it something were you offering some, was there anybody else offering what you were offering or were you finding people that were really looking for what you had? My motto was, I don't make cookies, muffins, and scones. I just call that my, my mission statement, like that's it. Like I don't want to make anything that everybody's already making. I want to make macaron, I want to make entremet, I want to make eclair, you know, all the stuff that I had learned in France. I want to make bouche de well. Um, you know, stuff that I knew was amazing, but we don't have it here. Well, the problem with that is getting people to try something new. I mean, even to this day, yesterday, people call me asking me for apple pie. Like, it's called pig's patisserie. We don't make apple pie. Maybe you should go to Dan's Bakery or something for the apple pie. I don't know. But, so I remember making like, um, you know, a dozen macaron, or actually, Here's, here's one. So the, the fruit tart that I made was called the Carmen Miranda. It was kind of like my signature at the market. Uh, it was a tiny little tart, uh, maybe like four inches round. And I was like, this is a lot of time to make because uh, I cut the fruit really intricately and <clears throat> put it all, like arranged it. It was like a little piece of art. And I called the Carmen Miranda because, you know, Ryan, you have something Carmen Miranda would wear in the head. <clears throat> Excuse me. So. I would take two of them to the market, and they had to be refrigerated, so I bought a fish aquarium. <laughs> and I put two uh, ice packs down, and then some like nice paper over it, and I put my two fruit tarts in there, and I was selling everything for like $10 each. 
and I'm like, no one's going to buy these because $10 was a lot of money for a dessert at the time. Um, but everybody stopped to look at them. Everybody stopped to look at them. And once they'd stop, then I'd give them a little sample of the Pixie Bar, and then they would taste that, and they'd be like, oh my god, it's so good, and start engage, engage, engage. So I got most of, you know, in the beginning, most of my customers came from um, the farmer's market. And then after the market ended, I was able to sell the product, um, the special orders. Just, they would literally come to my house and <laughs> pick up the cake. <laughs> and you would mentioned earlier that wine kind of be sort of becoming part of your life while in France. Tell me about it. At what point did it become part of your professional life? <laughs> So wine became part of my professional life, not out of a, a passion for wine necessarily, but as a necessity, because I decided I was going to open a restaurant. When you open a restaurant, you kind of need some wine. So when Picks first opened on Division Street, um, uh, I was really into Belgian beers. And so we had all the Trappists, all the triples, the tens, the, all that stuff went really well with desserts. But I was like, we need some wine. And so I called my Columbia rep, who we bought all the beer from. I was like, I need some wine. <laughs> so she's like, okay, <clears throat> this one needs to be cold. This is how much you put in this type of glass. This you have to drink in X amount of days. This one would go good with dessert. I'm like, great, we're all set. <laughs> and like anything, as soon as you start learning something about something, you learn how, you, how much you do not know about that product. So immediately it was like, okay, I have to take classes. I have to start, I need to learn about this because if I'm going to sell it, I need to learn about it. I know all about the beer, um, but yeah. So that's when I decided I'd start taking classes. And I know you did an interview with Mimi Martin from the Wine Spirit Archive. So uh, it's funny, I was watching that the other day and she said that in our WSET level two, the second time we offered it, we only had three students. And one of them was Cheryl Walker, and that was me and my employee and my employee. And I was like, <laughs> we're all going to learn about wine, guys. Let's go. So that's what we did. Um, and yeah, that's like anything, the more you learn about it, you get like really hooked. It's like, I want to learn more, I want to learn more. Tell me about opening a restaurant then, going from farmer's market, scrapping by, to actually having something brick and mortar that you had. What was the process like for you kind of mentally, and, and, and how did you kind of get it off the ground? Well, when you open the first restaurant, I say first because everybody opens the first, decides they need to open a second, which I don't, <laughs> don't necessarily recommend, but when you open the first, I mean, you're just excited, like, you know, and for me, it was, it was now I can offer my product every day. Everybody can come in every day. We're open seven days a week. We're open until two in the morning. Um, and another thing that was unique about what I was doing at the time, and I still think is unique, is that we've always been um, kind of like a bar and a restaurant. So we wanted to sell, we wanted to stay open late till two in the morning. We wanted to sell beer and wine paired with pastries. And that just sounds kind of crazy to people, especially 21 years ago. I remember the Neighborhood Association was like, why do you need a liquor license? You're selling pastry, you should sell coffee. I'm like, I'll sell coffee too, but I also want to sell wine and I want to sell beer. Um, so I just thought that was like a something different. I'm always looking for something different and something fun and people really loved it. And I remember like being in my own restaurant like late at night and just sitting in back in the booth with some friends and watching people come in the door and look at the pastry case and it's glowing and they're making the face glow and they're, they're listening to the music and they're kind of dancing while they just sip on some wine and decide like which pastry they're going to have and yeah it was it was a great great uh, time. How did that vision come about? You mentioned something different. How did the, the vision for having a bar that's also a pastry place that's open all the time, and how did that come to about? Was it fully fledged, or did it sort of come as you had the place open? I, th I think like uh, I had an acquaintance that put a bug in my ear that he wanted to open a bar, <laughs> and he wanted to invest some money. He never invested any money, but I was like, <laughs> bar, huh? Let's give it a shot, you know? But like not, it was completely my own thing, but like I think he put the bug in my ear, like, because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, these beers really do go well with dessert. And tell me about growing the business. So it was pretty successful right from the bat. Um, the space was super small. Um, and so immediately, like within two years or less, I think I decided I needed a bigger space. Look for a bigger space uh, over on North Williams, and then I was like, okay, I'm gonna get this up and running, and then I'm gonna shut down the division. But then once they were both up and running, it was kind of like, do I wanna shut it down? But then I very 
like shortly after that realized you cannot be in two places at once. And one thing that was nice about the one spot is like I was always there. I could like see what's going on. People like to talk to the owner and you know, it was just less payroll, right? And as soon as then you divide in the two places, um, it's just, and you're not watching what everybody's doing. Not, not watching, but like making sure that they know, it, um, like in the kitchen, what, what the recipes are. If we hire somebody new, they're not getting trained by me anymore. They're getting trained by somebody else. Um, and it was like a lot of back and forth. And, and you, you end up not making as much money, in my opinion, because then you're paying people to do the things that you used to do. Um, yeah. So it was rough. And at one point in 2007, I said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I just, it's not fun anymore. It's more just like the day-to-day. -day. I'm not baking. I'm doing just all the other stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was going to sell. And um, yeah. And then 2008 happened when all the banks collapsed and no one could get a loan. And I was like, no, you're killing me here because I'm the only one that does not want to work right now. And I almost, I didn't lay anybody off, but it was just like, it was a rough time, 2008. Um, but we pulled through it. And then I was like, okay, now I need another game plan. And the next plan was to buy a building, consolidate, go back to one space. And actually, for a minute, I had three spaces. Um, and Hawthorne because we opened a bar pasties with John Taboda. We opened a tapas bar. Uh, we went to Spain and got excited about that. Portland was not ready for that. <laughs> not a tapas bar like we were doing, like a Pincho's San Sebastian type bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But then so I moved over, bought this, was able to buy this building because of the recession, because things, cheap interest rates were low. Um, and I would never look back like this is like the best thing to move, consolidate. Uh, after so many years, I knew exactly the vision for this place. I knew, I knew I wanted a lot of sparkling wine here, and I started before I even moved. I started like buying up good vintages that I said, you know, 2004 is coming out, then the 2002s come out, and I, I just got a wine storage. I'm like, we're gonna, this is gonna be, this is gonna be something. We're gonna be known for our sparkling wine. Did I know we would be known <laughs> as well as we are now? Because um, we have won the world's best sparkling wine list by World of Fine Wine for nine years in a row. <laughs> Never thought that was going to happen, but <laughs> kind of jumping ahead here. But yeah, so back then I was thinking of what this space would be. And I knew I wanted more food because I wanted more savory food with the wine. I wanted to sell more wine. And one other thing that people don't understand is like, sure, you can just sell desserts and you can have your bakery open from, you know, 10 to 6. But we really made we really made a lot of money on selling the alcohol too. And then it made it more like a social space. It's like, a, it wasn't just a restaurant. It wasn't just a bakery. It was like a, a fun space with mm -hmm. events. And and yeah, lots of people still said, oh, we had our first date there. I got, got proposed there. You know, it's like, it was a, it was a go-to destination just because it was so weird. <laughs> <laughs> so before we continue, I'm going to back up for a second. You mentioned sparkling wine, obviously becoming known for sparkling wine. So at what point in the process did that become, start becoming your focus? From, as you were learning about wine, what, what made you focus in on sparkling specifically? So I'm not sure if there's like, I mean, I learned about wines and then started learning about champagne and there's, there's something about bubbles I just, I love I, sparkling in my water. Um, but I do remember like one day going to uh, Three Doors Down, which also had amazing wine list, uh, sparkling wine list. And it was my friend's birthday and we just got like a, a plate of oysters and a little demi bottle of Gaston Chiquet tradition. And we just had them together. And I was like, oh my God, this is so good. Let's get another. So we did it again. And I, I mean, I think like it was right around that time when I was like, wow, you know, I just really like, like champagne. I like the bubbles. I like uh, the stories behind all the, the producers. And this is like when grower champagne was coming in. I was like, what's this grower champagne? Like, and then I went to, to champagne. I started talking with, meeting the people. And I just <laughs> kind of got obsessed with it. <laughs> So from that, how do you how did you go about building a list, and how did you go about building a list that is that that is that renowned? What what were you looking for, and how have you sort of built it over the time, over the years? So within with everything, especially with the wine, I always look for something different and something unique. Obviously, something of good quality, but you know, like um, what are people doing that's different? Why is this wine this is different from this wine? 
Um, so like for example, if you're doing your second fermentation uh, under cork or versus a bottle cap. Uh, so going to Champagne and seeing what people were doing was, was very uh, exciting for me. Um, but yeah, then learning about different vintages, you know, people, uh, I learned a lot from Peter Lim's website. Um, and same with his cherry book. Uh, so talking to people, learning from them, and okay, disgorgement date, what is it? What does it mean? What, what, why do we have it on our, our list? And when I was building the list for here, like I remember sitting on the couch and like trying to find discordment date on for every bottle because it means something. It means it tells you how old the wine is. It tells you like like how long it was on lees if it's a vintage wine. So things like that were to support me. Things like spelling and accents and consistency in the list. I, I, it drives me. I'm a very organized person. It drives me crazy when I see like things dislabeled as you know Pinot Noir uh, and then like the producer will be next and then. The next one, it just has the cuvee, and then the producer, and then the vintage. I was like, no, it has to be the producer, comma, the cuvee, then the vintage, and then brute, extra brute, or whatever. You're like, I just really, it's easier on the on the eyes for the consumer to mm -hmm. read to find what they're looking for. Did you find that? There was a large, there was a, there was a, a demand for sparkling wine for a place like this that had this kind of sparkling wine. No, because every time I do something, I do something when the demand is not there yet. <laughs> I start selling tin fish. There's no demand. Ten years later, there's a demand. I start selling sherry. There's no, there's no demand now. It's just like macaron. When I first opened, I put out like 12 macarons. Like, come on, people, come get your macaron. <laughs> if I was lucky, I sold them all. Now, like when before the pandemic, we had you know like hundreds of macarons we sell. People can't get enough of them. But yeah, so, but like with everything, I was like, this is gonna work because I love it. I'm behind it, I'm passionate about it. I think it's a good product and I'm gonna make it work. Did you have, are there, are there st strategies? I mean, is it just pure persistence or were there other things you were trying to get people to kind of onboard with your vision? So a lot of what I do is events um, and I remember like, part of the, when I was still in North Williams, uh, I want to do, it's starting to get into sparkling wine, like this is so silly, like everyone just drinks it on New Year's and that's it, you know, or if it's your birthday or if it's your graduation, like, like I was saying in the beginning of the interview, there's a wine for everything, a wine for crappy day outside, a wine for a bad mood, a wine for a good mood, uh, like we should drink more. So I would, in January, We'd always have lots of sparkling wine for December, and I'm like, you know what? I'm not going to run it off the list. I'm going to keep it all on the list. That's actually why the list started growing, because for December, I buy a bunch of sparkling wine, and then, you know, January, you try to sell it off, sell it off, then you don't think about it again until December. And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to create an event. It's going to be called the Bubbly Spectacular. It's going to be all of January. It's going to be tastings. It's going to be specials, food pairings, flights. Uh, so. I did that for a couple of years, and I was like, okay, people still aren't getting into January thing. <laughs> so I'm like, let's just do this in December. So I would do like the Bubbly Spectacular was like a month long of sparkling things in December. Um, and that started really catching on. We had a lot of interest. Uh, people had more free time because they're off for the holidays, so they're coming to the tastings and everything. Uh, yeah, and then, like I said, I would just keep the wines and then add more <laughs> wines. So the list kind of just kept growing. When I moved in this space, the, the Bubbly Spectacular, I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of work for me, just like all the events. So the Bubbly Spectacular, which is still a lot of work, turned into a one-day event. And it's a one night, it was walk-around tasting for consumers, kind of like in the trade, we go to trade tasting, taste wines, walk around at different tables. But we did it for the consumer, and it was like 60 sparklers from all over the world. Like, I, I really like, again, something cheap, something expensive. We had the Cherubons, we had the small, the, the sweets, the after, everything. Um, and then I encourage everyone to dress up. Like, this is a party. So we had a best dress contest. Um, we had a sabering, learn to saber demo. Um, but, you know, what do people want? They want to learn. I do believe they want to learn, but they also want to have fun doing it. And so we did that every year, and every year it sold out. Um, we didn't do it during the pandemic, but we just had another one. It was. Uh, in the spring or the summer this year. I was like, let's switch it up because we haven't had it. Let's have it outside because of the pandemic and let's have it outside. Um, and yeah, it, 
because I'm sold out right away, uh, and everyone just has a good time. Yeah? Mm -hmm. So you know, events uh, and just teaching people about stuff like, but that that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of energy. Uh, I love doing it, but and also um, classes, classes for my staff. Like because if the staff doesn't know what's going on, then the consumer doesn't. Like you have to get the staff excited about something. The staff needs to know why we put the discouragement dates on. The staff needs to know like what's a good vintage or what extra brew. You know all these things. The staff needs to know how to properly open the bottle of wine. You know, um, one thing I will say about the space is you see there's no white tablecloths. We're not a fancy space. Um, I think the world of fine wine was kind of shocked to, like, to see our list and then see pictures of our space because it's not exactly what you think of when you think of, you know, magnums of crystal or whatever it is. Um, but I always said we need to just do a few basic things, you know, like here's how you, where you can access information, but also here's how you're going to serve a bottle of wine. And a few things that always bother me is um, when everyone just brings you flutes it's sparkling. Some people want flutes, some people want wine glasses. So what are we gonna do? We're gonna ask the customer. They sit down, they order a bottle of sparkling. You say, would you prefer flutes or wine glasses? It's something so simple, but it really makes a difference. Uh, and another thing in their service techniques, after they taste the wine, before you go and pour them a glass, you say, how is the temperature? Because there's nothing worse than being poured a warm glass, full glass, <laughs> really expensive champagne, you know? So ask the temperature, and if it's not chilled yet, like. Pull back, chill it, and bring it back out. Mm -hmm. But just little things like that, that you don't have to be a sommelier or expert on wine to do that to help, you know, give a good experience for the customer. So along that note, tell me about building your team here or along the way. Uh, what have you looked for uh, in people you've brought on board? And what do you, what is sort of your hope for a customer experience? So for customer experience, I want them to have fun, enjoy what they're, the products have good service, um, but basically, like, not even notice that they're having good service because it's just it's just there. Like, you walk in the door, you forget about all the crap that happened to you all day, and you just have it. Your day starts again, and you're having fun. You're having you're like relaxed. You're enjoying what you're doing. Um, and for staff, it's the same thing. You know, I I just kind of tell my staff or like I when I go to a restaurant, I just want to give the service that I would want when I go to a restaurant. So, you know, you don't want to just be sitting around waiting, looking for your server. You don't want to be like waiting. Dirty dishes bothers me. Uh, empty glasses of water, empty glasses of wine. You know, come back and like in, in, in Europe, I was coming back from Spain. Like once they serve you your food, for the most part, uh, they're not going to come back and ask you how it was or what. And so you have to know that's a cultural thing. Like if you want another glass, you have to say, hey, can I have another glass? But here it's different, you know, so check up on your, on your customers. Like, it's really just basically think of what, how you would want to be served. Mm -hmm. And so my staff, you know, I'm always looking for, first and foremost, someone eager that wants to learn because I can teach somebody. Um, sometimes you come in with bad habits. I'm not talking about like front of the house and back of the house. If you were taught to do something all your life one way, but that's not the way we do it. Like, for example, pet peeve of mine, oh, serve the ladies first. No, we don't do that. We don't do it here. That's just our house. We do. Whoever ordered the wine, taste the wine, and then we just go and order. Like, mm -hmm. so, you know, maybe you work someplace and that's how you did it all the time. Okay, let's change this. This is how we want to do here. So yeah, and then I thought it's very important for them to, before they go out on the floor, like, take my champagne class, take my sherry class. If you are going to go into that cellar and find a bottle, you have to take the cellar test. And the cellar test is something I created. Uh, it's basically copy the wine list and I highlight different wines and I go find them because we have large bottles, we have small bottles, we have bottles that don't fit in the spot that they should be because of weird shape. So then you have to figure out where they would be. We have, let's say it's a red wine, but it's not in with the red wines. Why is it not? Because it's a Cote de Champenoise. So that's going to be with the Cote de Champenoise. So you have to figure out where you're going to find that in the cellar. And meanwhile, TikTok, the customer is waiting, right? So you have to do this. So we have the cellar test for them. But yeah, educating the staff is very important to me. Tell me about now that you're now that you're on the teaching side of things rather than the as opposed to being the educated part. What do you emphasize when you're teaching? about wine, about sherry, about champagne. What are the most important things for you that you want to make sure that your customers know and that your staff know? 
it just depends on the subject. Always how it's made, right? Like that's a very important thing. Um, like sherry's gonna be different than champagne. So how it's made, um, tasting obviously, like let's, if I'm gonna do introductory dish to sparkling wine class, I'll do like, okay, here's a, a tank Prosecco. Here's maybe Prosecco that was made in the traditional method. Here's like your classical Boulanger, like three grape variety champagnes. Um, and you know maybe a demi sec, but you know, you also have to read your audience, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes you have a mix of people that I've never had sherry in my life, and I've like I've taken two of a sherry class or whatever. I've been to Spain, you know. So it's important when you're teaching to give something to all those people. Everyone needs to learn something, and yet not be bored. It's pretty and, good. Pretty good teaching philosophy. And have fun. <laughs> to have have fun. So uh, when I teach, I try to do something that I don't, I just don't stand in one spot and say, okay, now this is made like this and that tastes this. Da, 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 da. I will like, um, for my sherry class, uh, I made all the staff like stand up. I'm like, okay, everyone, like, especially staff, like they don't want to be there. Right? <laughs> they didn't sign up and pay for it. I'm paying them to be there. So like, okay, everybody stand up. Now this is the sherry triangle. There's a San Lucar, there's Jerez, and then I'm like, I'm gonna be the Capitaz, and I get up my Venezia and I pour some water, you know, <laughs> say it's vodka, just joking, but like, okay, now I'm gonna taste you. Okay, is the, is the must, is it, is it tasting delicate and light, or is it more heavy and round? Okay, Fino, okay, you're Oloroso, you're Fino, you're Oloroso, you're gonna be Manzanilla, so go to San Lucar and hang out by the beach until we're ready for you, because you have to be aged in San Lucar to be a Manzanilla, and you know, just interactive as much as possible. So at some point along the way, you found uh, you found time to be an author as well. So tell us about how that came to be. Yes, so I always thought I wanted to write a book, but like the time, like that's the problem with <laughs> the time. There's never enough time um, when you run your own business. Um, but somebody came to me and said, "Hey, you know, I used to live in Portland. And I work for Page Street Publishing now, and uh, we love your stuff. We're wondering if you want to write a book." And I was like, really? So basically they just gave me a contract and I didn't know much about the whole process. Uh, since then I've learned a lot. I've been in a book club with people who've also authored books and um, so a lot of people, like it's hard to get the contract. Mm. Um, was it the best contract that I could have had? Probably not, but it was a contract. I didn't have to get an agent. I didn't have to go out and do any legwork. I didn't even have to write like a chapter of the book. They just said, okay, tell us about what you think the book should be. I said, this is, okay, here's the contract. And, and I did it. And time is <laughs> of the essence, and I didn't have a lot. So uh, I ended up writing the book in like 91 days <laughs> because I had this deadline. And it was like, I'm not going to pass this up. I want to do it because if I go to try to do it, start it myself, like I won't, I won't make the time. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, this is, if you'd like to do it, we'd like to have you do it. And so, yeah, it was, it was fun. Uh, it was a learning experience. Um, but to this day, like the book is still selling. During the pandemic, I got my first royalty checks, and that was exciting because the restaurant was shut down. Um, but yeah, and and then with that, I love to go before the pandemic and do book shows, demos, like love that, you know. And if I get an audience of like a hundred people, I can always get like sixty to seventy-five of them to purchase a book, you know. So like. That's a great way to sell a book and connect with people, and hopefully they tell their friends. You mentioned it being a learning experience. What did you, were you pleased with how it came out? I was, and I should probably mention the title, <laughs> Modern French Pastry. Uh, since then, I went on to do another book called Petite Patisserie, uh, which released in 2020, so it wasn't exactly the best timing for it. Um, but yeah, no, I, I was pleased. Will, will there always be something that you look back on and you would have done differently? Of course. Um, that's part of the reason why I wanted to do a second book. It was like, okay, I learned something writing the first book. And like, number one, buy yourself a new computer before you start writing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that's why I wanted to do the second book. Um, I had a little bit more time to do the second book as well. But yeah, the timing of the release was kind of problematic. But, but yeah, I do. I love just like flipping through the pictures and and try to tell people like the stuff we make here. Yes, you look at the picture um, and it looks like, oh, I can never do that. But the takeaway is, yes, you can if you 
read the directions and follow them and you don't have to do everything in one day you don't even have to do all the components if you want to make like the royale which is the quoise and buttercream and chocolate mousse and a hazelnut praline and a glaze you can just make chocolate mousse <laughs> and put it in a bowl and eat it with a spoon maybe with a glass of sherry or something Uh, well, for the first book specifically, uh, you mentioned like a three three months basically to write it. How did you how did you do that? How did you pull it off? I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. It's like a blur. It's like I don't know how I do a lot of things. Like for example, the pandemic. I'll just say the last two and a half years of my life, it's like I felt like that Tasmanian devil, and just like nonstop because the first thing I had to do was get rid of all my staff, and then once I did that, it was just me. And it wasn't busy, but then all of a sudden, it was busy. Um, but the Pixomatic vending machines, yeah. So it's just like with the book, I, I just look back, I was like, uh, someone said I had to get it done, so I'm going to do it. Mm -hmm. And yeah. So let's talk about the pandemic, the last couple of years, and uh, the the changes you've had to make, the ev evolution you've had to do. So tell me about kind of immediate immediate aftermath of, of March 2020 and, and how things have sort of shaken out since then. So my first thought was like, thank God I get to close the restaurant and have a day off. I was like, yes, this is going to be great because everybody, like, I had invited the staff to come get their last paychecks, drink all the open bottles, take some food home. And I was like, oh, we'll see you in two weeks. I'm like, two weeks? Do you understand, kid, what's going on? Like, I'll see you in October. I was at 2020, so I was like, I was like, yep, yeah, I've seen what's going on in Italy. Like, this is not, this is no joke. This is going to be for a long time, and I'm thinking, yeah, I'm going to get a break. What am I getting for money? I'll figure that out, but I'm going to get a break because uh, I just finished writing the second book. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, immediately, like, like I said, I'm first and foremost entrepreneur, and I was like, okay, how, how am I going to make the money? And think about things, think about things, and then I had this idea back in. Uh, like six, seven, eight years ago, I don't know. Um, I had to close the restaurant for two days a week, which we had never done in 20 years. We never done that. Always seven days a week, because I wanted like this place for the people. You can come whenever you want. Um, but yeah, we had to close, and I was like, this is nice at first, but now we're losing money. It's December. Like we could be making a lot of money. What if I got a vending machine? At least they could come and buy stuff. You know, the two days a week we could close. I never did it, and then got that PPP money <laughs> and sitting on that couch and like my boyfriend and I sitting on the couch and it just kept, the idea came back. The vending machine. Oh my God, the, I forgot about the vending machine. Take my credit card <laughs> Go buy a vending machine. So I remember we put the vending machine on, I saw the front door and we set it up like, okay, if I can make $100 a day on this vending machine, that's going to pay the mortgage. Like, let's see what happens. You know, like, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And I remember like sitting here and like looking out the window, like, oh, Tice, there's somebody who's the vending machine. There's somebody who's the vending machine. First day we made $400. Like, woo, this is great. And I sent it out to the press. And like, I'm always like, events, like, you gotta get, keep people interested in whatever it is you're doing, the wine, the pastry, like events. So I sent it out, press release. I'm like, we're gonna do pop ups on the vending machine with other local people. We did one with Cowbell. Uh, we did one. The first one was Lucky Strike, who had closed, but I know Rita, I was like, why don't you make some dumplings? We'll put them in the vending machine, and it will be a pop. And so that was the first weekend, and the Oregonian picked it up and wrote about it. And we had a line, social distance line, <laughs> but like all the way down the block, people were waiting like two hours because you couldn't make the dumplings fast enough. <laughs> and so we made like $4,000 in the day in the vending machine. And it was crazy. Like, I never ever guessed and to this day that's probably my biggest my best creation <laughs> um, but yeah and then it was so busy uh, I couldn't keep a stock so I, the whole idea of the vending machine was like I was waiting here for orders to pick up the special orders. So, but I could stock the thing and go home but mm -hmm. immediately that didn't happen it was too busy so I bought a second vending machine and even that was too busy on Friday and Saturday nights I had to have employees come and I would leave backup stuff in the side and they would like transfer it over it was crazy it was so crazy um, but the downside of all this is like we didn't have the restaurant open so we weren't selling the wine you know and like the last two years I feel like like uh, I couldn't really open a bottle of wine and really enjoy it and appreciate it for what it was 
because I have so much other stuff going on. I'm just like, go, 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 go. And now that we've closed the restaurant, um, I've semi-retired, um, like that's what I'm looking forward to do this year. Like we've already opened uh, a couple weeks ago, we opened at Amar Gain Special Club 2004. Just, just drinking really beautifully. I'm like, that's awesome because I have nine more bottles because <laughs> I stocked up on the vintage as I like. And then just a couple days ago, I opened a soda, uh, 1998 Blanc de Blanc. And just like, it just, just feels so great to just sit there and actually look at this wine, enjoy this wine, and like, think of wine. 1998, what was I doing? And they were making this sparkling wine in Oregon. That's, that's crazy to think about. So you kind of uh, give a peek ahead there at the closing and semi-retirement. So tell me about the decision in the last year uh, to, to close and to semi-retire and uh, what, you're, what you're working on now. So when I moved into this location, we were consolidated and I had originally wanted to retire to close the restaurant, uh, sell the restaurant back in 2007. Plan B was then to buy this and then I was like, okay, if you're going to go on like fourth build out. If you're gonna do this, you're gonna invest the money and invest in the space. This used to be a, day, a daycare. Um, <laughs> it's called Little Footsteps. And the playground is now a patent court for the adults. It's still a playground, it's an adult playground. Um, but yeah, so if you're gonna invest in this, you have to commit to 10 more years. 10 more years in the restaurant business. It's already been 11 years, so I was like, okay, 10 more years, so let's see, we're gonna open on this date. That means on August 22nd, 2022, you're done. So from the day that we opened, I have a countdown. A countdown written on the back, there's no secret. Cheryl retires August 28th, 2022. Then the pandemic happened and I was like, ooh, early retirement? It's <laughs> like, no, just like you said you're gonna write this book, you have to write it, you only got 92 days, 91 days. You said you're gonna do 10 years, now you're gonna do 10 years. So pandemic happened, like how am I gonna do this? And we got the vending machines, which was really great because they're financially amazing because it doesn't take any staff to really do much stuff or make the desserts. Um, yeah, and then the pandemic dragged on, of course, it's still here, but um, dragged on. So we never really fully got back up and running. Uh, we did some holiday teas, we did some Easter, tea, Mother's Day things, uh, some events, and a couple classes and stuff, but we never really got the full restaurant kind of up and running, which in a way it's sad, it's like you look around, it's a beautiful space, and for two years it's kind of sitting empty. Um, but I also wasn't going to open and close, open and close, open and close. So, uh, yeah, so August 22nd, 2002, started coming up and I was like, what should I do? Should I, should I try to keep open and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, so I'm like, no, he said, you're gonna do this, do it, you deserve it. And then I had a big party. <laughs> and yeah, and uh, like we did so many events last summer. Uh, we had movie nights, we had Flamingo Fridays. We, we did a patio as soon as people found out that we were closing we were selling champagne like mad out on the patio. And it was just like, Sanity, and even for my retirement party, like I've been envisioning this for ten years. I'm like, yeah, retirement. We're gonna drink like the best. Like we got Gerald Bond. We're gonna. I'm gonna like have this whole bar set up, and I was gonna pick out all these amazing bottles. And literally 15 minutes before the party started, like let's just go, go, go. I was like, okay, going in that cellar. <laughs> Here, Kate, take this. Take the Jero Bomb Bollinger 1997. Take, take this, open this, just like put it all over the patio. We're going to have a party. And then it was over. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I said. Like, I'm looking forward to just relaxing. So now the space is going to stay. We're going to keep the space, but it's going to be event space and classes, pastry classes. Um, There'll be events based on wine, based on champagne, sherry, um, food, food pairings, that kind of thing. Um, and then that cellar is now going to be my walk-in closet. Whenever <laughs> I feel like having a nice bottle of wine, I can just go in there and I don't have to save it for the list because for nine years, um, we were, like I said, awarded the world's best champagne sparkling wine list by World of Fine Wine. And people still don't believe it. Like, it's important. Like, the first year we won, I didn't believe it. Like, I didn't even enter. It was the first year of the awards, and they were just, they found our list through some people recommending us. 
and I thought it was a joke. I saw it on Twitter. I was like, look at this, Rachel. We're the best finalist in the world. And, I was like, and then the next year that I enter, it was like, OK, so we entered. And then like every year, and every year I would send out a press release, and everyone's like, and so like by the sixth year, like people were like, and, and then I think they got the best sparkling list to North America. I'm like, nope, it's the world. <laughs> but, you know, who's counting? And I remember an interview, like, once the, the one of the TV musicians came after we won, like, six times. It's like, so this is six times, Cheryl. How many more times are you going to do this? How many more times are you going to win? I'm like, I'm going to win nine times. Nine times. You know why? Because I knew I was going to retire August 2nd, 2022. And what happened? I won this last year. Um, yeah, but I'd say, I saved a lot of the bottles. A lot of bottles that I wanted wanted to taste, you know, like I saved them for the list. Like, that's why our list is what it is. I don't go in and just drink whatever I want. I like it's part of the collection. You know, we had a lot of verticals of things like that you can't find anymore. A lot of older vintages you can't find. Um, but now it's all fair game. <laughs> I'm curious about before we get to sort of post retirement. I'm curious about. <clears throat> When you're building a list like that, and you're and you're doing it year after year, how how do you sort of keep up with what's happening in the world of sparkling wine? How how are you how do you plug yourself in so that you're continually adding to the list and making it as good as you want it to be? It's very important, and and things keep changing so fast. Like just in sherry region, um, they just change all the rules. So like now you can sherry can be a non-fortified wine. It used to be like that's one of the things that made it sherry. Like number one, it has to be fortified. Uh, but they just changed that. So yeah, you just read stuff, talk to people. If you can, visit the regions. That's the best way you're going to figure out um, what's going on is go to the source. Uh, but yeah, it was very important. And right before the pandemic, what I had seen, you know, first we had the, like the grower champagne movement. But now it's like single parcels, single vintage. So like one producer may used to have um, seven, six, seven cuvées, maybe maybe four cuvées. Now they have like 12 because like this plot was been broken up to this plot and this plot and this soil is different over here and here and here. And then the price just starts to skyrocket because it's so rare, right? And then it's just like, I don't even have enough room on my list for, for any of these wines. You know, it's like you want to have something you want it all, right? But not all, but like what you think is worthy of drinking and interesting, um, something that you can't find. So a lot of my list is also stuff that you can't find. It was hard to find. It was different. I thought interesting in, its, in whatever way it was. Um, but yeah, you never saw Vilcuco or the big names on our list, no Dom Pignon, none of that stuff. Why? Be not because it's not a good wine is because you can find that over there, you can find that over there, you can find that over there. But can you find like this little tiny producer in the Obe on my list? Yes, you can. And do you know who is? No, but if you ask me, I'll tell you. And let's learn together, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now that you mentioned sort of semi-retired, obviously uh, you still have things going on. What are you looking ahead to uh, this year and beyond? Or what are the special projects you want to take on? Other challenges you're looking forward to? No challenges. <laughs> 2023 is going to be about no challenges. Um, I want to not do a lot of things. <laughs> I want to do everything very slow. I want to open a bottle of wine and just like be able to, you know, analyze it, but think about it, drink it, share it, talk about it. Um, where during the pandemic, I just. It's just like, I can't, you know, once I went to Louis Rodier and, and they're talking about their, when they taste the blends, like we go to this, this room, but anybody that's had anything bothering them in the past 24 hours doesn't come in. I was like, oh, well, that's me for two and a half years. Like, because <laughs> you can't really pay attention to the wine. So like, not just that, but everything in my life, like I just slow it down, like, just too, it's just too much going on. So. Will I do some classes? Yes. Will will there be maybe a movie night? Yes. Will there be movie night every week? No. Maybe one. <laughs> so, and yeah, the Pixelmatic. Since everything is is open now, they are not as busy. Thank God. So, <laughs> I have one employee back there right now uh, helping me with the pastries. Um, but yeah, I just I don't I just don't want to do a lot of stuff. I want to like 
travel. I took five weeks off to go to Spain, but then what did I do? I find myself like, oh, gotta go visit this producer, gotta visit this producer, which is, is fine, but it was like you realize that you're like working a lot again. You gotta back off, which is hard for me because I, I like to go, 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 but like my boyfriend is like, you're like a top, you like you spin, you spin, you spin, and then you just fall down because you, <laughs> you too much. Like, there's gotta be some moderation there, so yeah. Um, but yeah, some classes and travel and relaxing. I'm curious about the, the baking part of things. Obviously, your, the, sort of your first passion and what brought you into things. Uh, did you continue bake, doing baking throughout, and did you, do you still like doing it? Yeah, and um, I do love it. And one thing that stuck out when I wrote the book, uh, Nona French Pastry, is how much I love that. Because, you know, my first love was, was the, the baking, right? And then I started really getting into wine, and a lot, of, I mean, that whole list, I don't, didn't have a sommelier. I didn't have like eight people working on the wine list. Like I, all of that was me. I picked all the wines, I wrote the list, I updated the list, I printed the list, I trained the people on the list. I called it the animal because, I mean, <laughs> it was 60 pages long. It was like insane. But so, you know, then that took a lot of my time. Like, and then you know, when we moved here, we added the tapas. Uh, again, it's something that I loved. I loved that Sebastian. And so guess who created the menu and the recipes? <laughs> Me. So I was spending a lot of time on that. And then I like fell in love with the conservas. And then I, I have to learn about all this tin fish. <laughs> and then I found myself like, you know, drifting away from being in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so when I had to write the book, all of a sudden I'm back in the kitchen nonstop for 90 some days. Of, so yeah, like. It's nice. It's nice to like balance all of these things that I love, um, which is kind of what I would do. I work on the wine list for a while, then I'd work uh, new recipes for the holidays or something, and then it was like, okay, now let's get some tapas and kind of just rotate back and forth. Mm -hmm. So obviously, the focus of, the, of your wine list, the focus of your wine education, hasn't been Oregon specific. But I'm I'm curious about your impressions of the Oregon wine industry. Obviously, you mentioned. Soder and their sparkling program. Uh, tell me about as you started to learn wine, what your impressions of Oregon kind of first were, and and how you've seen it change in the time you've been here. Yeah, so my two favorite wine categories are champagne and sherry. So there's not a lot you can do with those site-specific things in Oregon. However, um, yes, I'm very excited to see the growth of sparkling wine in Oregon. Um, when I first started, like. I was really like, I, look, I want to put Oregon sparkling wine on the list, but there just wasn't a lot. And then when it really started, people started to pick up on it. Um, but a lot of it, you know, there was a lot that wasn't made that great. It's not easy to make sparkling wine. It just takes a lot of time. Uh, it takes a lot of know-how. And like, you can make something, and you're really not going to know what it's going to taste like for at least three years. Um, so yeah, now. The past like five years, I feel like a lot of people have really upped their game, and there's there's more availability out there. Like you have the Analemma, uh, obviously Argyle was there in the beginning, um, Soder was there in the beginning, um, Maison Jusme is a nice one that I he just came knocking on my door one day, and uh, yeah, like there's more and more. So we have a whole section now on the list, or well, what was the list of sparkling wine just from Oregon. And mm -hmm. so that, that makes me really proud that we are advancing in that direction. And I think the sparkling overall is becoming more and more popular. Why well, it wasn't 10 years ago, I don't know, when I had all this, this wine, but uh, yeah. And one thing I will say uh, that always reminds me of Oregon is the IPNC. And when I first started, Anne invited me out to be guest chef. and. Um, it was so fun. I was <laughs> like, this is great. Like, not only are the guests having fun, but the chefs are having fun, the sommeliers are having fun. Um, that's actually where I learned how to saber <laughs> IPNC. Uh, so I was got invited out almost every year to do another event. Like, I remember, like, oh, yeah, this is my, like, seventh year or whatever. And I think it was, like, my fourth year or something. And um, my now boyfriend is was out there. And he was with another restaurant. and. Um, so I don't know if you know this tradition, but the chefs on Sunday used to go into the kitchen and um, the guy found, I think it was Alexis, bring 
bucket of ouzo, or a case of ouzo and a bucket of calamari. And Sunday morning, you would go get your ouzo and your calamari in the kitchen. So we're doing that, and then they can walk in, and they say, where's the sparkling wine? Like, I've been doing this so long. I know where the sparkling wine is. You gotta find the Psalms in their kiddie pool. So we walk outside, and like, yep, there they were. And I was like, see, I told you, like, kind of flirting. You know? so, it was like, and then that's the first time I sabered because uh, they were all just sabering. And uh, that day, the, my event was um, beer floats, lambic floats. So <laughs> a bottle of uh, raspberry lambic and then a scoop of our house-made ice cream, and we poured over. So after this whole thing went down with the sabering at the kiddie pool, we went to our event, and we just started sabering every beer <laughs> before we poured. <laughs> and it was amazing. But yet, yeah, like... Every, and then every year, like IPNC, I just have so many great memories. And every, I love how they try to reinvent it every year, make it a little different and interesting for everybody. Um, I feel really bad during the pandemic how they had to close things down and try to reinvent just like everybody did. But, um, you know, like when I get handed a glass of Oregon Pinot Noir, I was like, this reminds me of IPNC. Mm -hmm. Like, just such great memories of that. So with Oregon sparkling wine specifically, you talked about how there's there's so much more now, and, and you feel like it's it's improved. Uh, do you do you see as you look ahead? Do you see more sparkling wine coming? Better sparkling wine coming? What do you kind of see for Oregon sparkling wine future? Well, I think you can only get better. Like it's just like I said, it's a lot of work um, and time, and you need time to see progress, see results. So. Um, yeah, and I also will say I've been a little bit out of the wine scene the last two years because I've been doing this. But yes, uh, I, I think it's only going to get better, and I'm almost positive people I hear people wanting to get into it, asking their colleagues about tips here and there. You know, like uh, where I don't know, where do you go to learn sparkling wine? Is there a sparkling wine school? I don't think so. Like in France, they go to do apprenticeship with their neighbor, you know, and that's how they learn. Um, I don't know where they go. <laughs> Should ask some of these people where do you go to learn how to make sparkling wine? But yeah, you have to learn somewhere. And yes, you can do trial and error, um, but that just takes more time. So like, I still to this day take pastry classes. Uh, I did before the pandemic. I had actually I had a really great one lined up, and then it got canceled right at the last minute. But like, there's always more to learn. So uh, you know, I think more and more people are going to get into it because it's becoming more and more popular. Um, and Oregon as a region, it's always getting more attention. Um, and also the climate, the, the climate for sparkling wine this year is it's great. And yeah, I also think, you know, like there's gonna be more sparkling wine made all over the world, not just in Champagne. Not, I mean, you know, that's one of the focuses on the Bubbly Spectacular was like, look, here's a sparkling wine from Luxembourg. Did you know they made sparkling wine in Luxembourg? They do. Um, do you want to try it? Like, let's see what they got, you know, because everybody, like champagne, it's great. But it's also very expensive. And then you got the changing climate there, too. Um, and now you see a lot of Cote de Champenoise, which I also had a full section on my, page, on my list 10 years ago, Cote de Champenoise, so non-sparkling wine from the Champagne region. Um, and all of a sudden, you see a lot more of that coming up. But you're just always ahead of your time. I think so. <laughs> Whatever. Well, so that's why that's great that I get to teach, you know? Teach. So looking back now from, from your mostly retired spot here, what are you proudest of? I think the proudest thing is that I've been able to turn the things that I love and passionate about it into a working business that's number one successfully financially, but also a lot of accolades. Um, people, people have fun. Like when I, that's another thing with the, with the events. When you come to the Bubble Spectacular and you see people parading around with number five as we play I'm Too Sexy and they show off their costume. It's about wine, but also it's about having fun. And they have fun. Mm -hmm. And so I loved when we had the events and seeing that. So, but yeah, like most people, they have a thing they're passionate about, but then to actually sell it, make money on it, it's, it's difficult. Or maybe they, I'm going to open a restaurant, I'm only going to sell French pastry, but then someone asks you for cupcake, and then they ask you for cheesecake and muffins and scones. And if you say yes, okay, then maybe yes, you're, they're going to buy something. But if you say no, I'm going to stick with what I like, because I don't like, making cupcakes does not make me happy. <laughs> so I'm not going to make them. 
So kind of this whole thing, when I look back over 21 years, is everything that I do here is stuff that I love. And if I can share that with other people and they love it too, done. Well, fantastic. So all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't cover that you'd like to cover here? So. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, for sharing your space with us and your stories with us. And uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.